Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Philip Cox has transformed the image of Romanian wine since he arrived there in 1991. Having tried his hand at selling beer, he bought a rundown winery in 600 hectares of vineyards and hasn't looked back. Today his company, Cremini Ricas, sells more than 30 million litres, using international as well as local grapes. He's an outspoken innovator, an entrepreneur, who's always believed in listening to consumers first. Hello, Philip, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Hey, wonderful to talk to you. And I know you're in Romania because you live in Romania, but just tell us where you are in Romania. Timisoara. So it's the third biggest city of Romania. It's right on the western border towards Hungary. And sometimes I learned called Little Vienna, right? Yeah, it was Built by the Austro-Hungarians, it's a very pretty city with a very historic city centre. It's the capital of culture for Europe this year, so it's very buzzing right now. And, and, and not yet ruined, I hope, by, by, by people on stag weekends. Yeah, thankfully not. No, it's, it's quite calm. and it, it, it's, it's a university city, a lot of students, so it is quite, it's not quiet at night time, but it's, it's not hooligans. It's not nasty. It sounds wonderful. D- tell us about where you were born and brought up, because you're from Bristol. I mean, you're a Brit, obviously. You can still hear a bit of it in your accent, maybe. Bristol, wine city, many ways, at least historically. I mean, was wine part of your life growing up? Did you ever have a sense that you might end up doing what you do? Uh, not initially. My parents weren't very big wine drinkers, but my cousin and my aunt, my dad's sister, own some wine shops and still do. So they have a wine shop in Long Ashton, which is like a little luxury suburb of Bristol. And um, I used to go and help them out in the summer holidays when I was a student and then doing my A-levels. And I think that was it. I think, yeah, my cousin is to blame for my career. I, I didn't think it was going to be a job, though. It, was, it started off like a summer job. And then I did the... Um, what do you call it, WSET, a diploma and higher certificates and stuff at the Long Ashton Research Institute there. And that got me more and more interested in it. I still didn't think I would end up working in it. That was a completely, that's another story <laughs> for later on. I mean, after university, you, you went into advertising, didn't you? I mean, what were you, what were you advertising? So I was working in, um, my first job working in Pall Mall in the centre of London. And because um, I did my uni in London. And uh, it was, it was a, just a crazy general advertising company and trying to sell any advertising they could to as many people as possible for like trade journals and UN journals. And it was very aggressive. It was all commission. I was a salesman and you didn't earn any money if you didn't sell anything. So I think it gave me a Good start in the, for the world of business because it was it was tough. It was aggressive. So it was sales more than advertising. Selling, 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 yeah. advertising. Yeah, God, that's that's a tough job. It's horrible. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> but it, 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 you learn things from it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you go from there, Palmel? You know, selling advertising space to to Romania. 
Well, it was 1990 back then, so it was just at the time when all these countries around here had the, their revolutions and became democracies, more or less, got rid of communism. And um, this part of Europe was seen as very much a kind of opportunity for a lot of people. And so they, I was the youngest one straight out of university. I was I was the youngest guy in the company. They, they made me the manager for Eastern Europe because nobody else wanted to come here. <laughs> and so I got sent out to all of these countries, and I was in Yugoslavia exactly when the war happened. I was, there, I was literally there when the war happened. Bulgaria, Poland, um, Hungary, and Romania. And I came to Romania a lot. I did best in Romania. I found that Romania at that time was so isolated from the rest of the world. It was pretty much like North Korea is now. Well, and um, they were keen to do anything. There, people were keen to start businesses. They were keen to work with Western companies. Everybody wanted to be an entrepreneur, and they still do. So, um, yeah, they, I kept coming here and built up some business here for that, and then. Being very few foreign people here, a lot of local people wanted to make partnerships with foreigners. They, they wanted to trade with the West. They wanted to import things. Romania's industry had collapsed pretty much. They weren't really making anything. The people were starving in 1989. They literally had no food. It was in a very bad shape. So everybody wanted to do something, bring something. So initially, we were trying to do advertising. But then people were saying, like, well, we need to import things, we need to produce things, we need business. And so everyone wanted to start a company, really. And I tried a few things. I had a, somebody convinced me to start a cinema for a while. I had a little cinema. I, I would bring, like, videos from England, like with Terminator movies and stuff like that. But it got shut down by the police because we didn't have an official license. <laughs> It was nothing dirty, by the way. It was a legitimate <laughs> cinema with like proper films. It wasn't. Um, and then somehow or other, my advertising job, one of the clients was Heineken, big beer company. And I was talking to them about, you know, you've got to go to Romania, you've got to do something. Romania's going to be happening. It's starting from zero. You can be a big business there you can, and you can be the king of Romania. Well, they said, we're not sending any beer there. We're not, we don't have any links to it. I said, I'll do that for you. And, you know, being whatever I was, I was like 21 or something. I was very young and I, just, I didn't know anything about beer apart from being a student, which qualified me to some degree, drinking it. So um, I put all my savings into buying a pallet of beer from Heineken and brought that here. And it was sold the moment it got here. And then we bought a truck with a couple of Romanian friends, and that sold the same day. And it was a huge success. It 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 was um, people knew about Western brands because they'd seen them on TV. It was like in um, you can remember Dallas and mm. Dynasty and mm. all those big TV shows a long time ago. Young people won't know what that is, but um, the brands were famous. They couldn't be bought here. And they were regarded as a bit of a luxury. So, like drinking Heineken was like uh, was like champagne for these people at that time. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But it sounds odd. The, the first time they opened a McDonald's here was about 1993 or something. Before, 
people went there like dressed up. It was like going to the Brits. Yes, really. They, they hadn't had that before. And it, it sounds kind of sad and funny, but it was, it was a big deal to them. They, they, they had, people here wanted Western things and they wanted a Western lifestyle for a long time and they couldn't have it. So anything Western was seen as, you know, great. I mean, all respect to my friends at Heineken's. It's not the most interesting beer in the world. No, it's not. But, you know, at that time it was glamorous. And that led to another other businesses. We had um, Perrier Mineral Water, which is stupid because Romania has great mineral water and lots of it. And all sorts of stuff. Direct Burt's Coffee, liqueurs, anything we could sell. <laughs> and um, that was how I got into the wine business in the end because we were selling all this stuff. I made a company. We were importing all of these consumer goods, basically. And uh, the country was in an economic collapse, a bit like Argentina or Venezuela is mm. now. Mm. It was like hyperinflation. You know, one day the money was a thousand lay to one dollar, and then a month later it was ten thousand. Wow! And it was crazy. You know, and the, you couldn't change the local currency into hard currency in the bank. So I thought, got to get something that I can sell abroad to be able to continue buying my beer because I couldn't pay them. I couldn't pay the Heineken. I had stacks of Romanian money. Literally, we had to carry it all. There was no banking system. It was all cash. Had billions and billions and billions of this Romanian money, which was not particularly valuable. And we couldn't get hard currency to pay for our products. So wine, I thought, was something they could do here. It's a, it's a huge part of Romanian culture and tradition. It's a very big wine-producing country. I think it's the six biggest in Europe. It, it was actually bigger at that time. And there is was, it like 10 in the world or 11 in the world? I've even different now it's, I think it's in the top 10. It sort yeah. of depends. There are various yeah. statistics. It's a lot higher in the statistics for the vineyards than it is for the actual wine production. But we'll tell you about what, why later on. No, because it's got a long history of wine. But I didn't realise until I did a bit of research to talk to you. You know, Greeks, Romans, monks, you know, all the things that, yeah. that, 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 that the famous wine regions of Europe have, or a lot of them, um, came through Romania. 6,000 years old of people making wine. Is that correct? It's a huge history. Going back, we have varieties that we can date. To at least two, three thousand years old, we have our mm. own Romanian local varieties. So it has a great history and a great culture for wine. And even during communism, that didn't really go away. People drink a lot of wine during their meal times. It's not binge drinking; it's part of their culture. A bit like in France, people always have wine with food. Mm. It's the same here; they have a higher wine consumption, for example, than the Brits. So wine is part of the country, and I thought. This has got to be something that we can sell. How hard can that be? <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, I found a way to do it, yeah, oddly, through various, yeah. Do you know a lady called Angela Muir, famous yes, English really. master of wine? Yeah. I, I just went back to England. I got heaps of wine samples from Romania. I went to lots of wineries. Nobody was very enthusiastic about exporting. And they still aren't, most of them. <laughs> Um, but I found a few that were keen to sell their wine and I took samples. I went to like the Bristol wine affair before it was the London wine fair. It was the Bristol wine affair mm. and met a lot of people. And one of the people I met was Angela Muir and she helped us, uh, get in touch with various customers. 
And then she found a German company that makes Black Tower, Ray Kenderman, Mr. Ray. And they were very keen on Eastern Europe because they, they were struggling to sell, um, you know, the big thing at that time was Liebfrau Milch and Hock and Peas Porter and stuff like that. It wasn't going well. It wasn't going well. So they wanted to diversify and you know, get some new new stuff to sell. And so we did that, brought poor old Angela over here and drove her around Romania for a couple of weeks in a dusty old opal that nearly fell apart. And it was awful. There were no roads. Most of the wine was horrible. <laughs> but we did find a few interesting things, and we, we started doing it. We found a couple of wineries. And we very quickly became a big business, rather surprisingly. I mean, you've, you've talked about this extensive vineyard. I mean, I read somewhere 187,000 hectares. I mean, that's that's enormous. But a lot of it is just in people's back gardens, isn't it? They're kind of making stuff for themselves. Yeah, so or it's like a- it was bigger. At, when I started in 1991, it was 300,000 hectares. It was literally a huge, huge, huge company, country for wine, the... The communist uh, era leaders had seen it as a priority, so they they remade the whole Romanian wine industry and planted a lot of new vineyards, created a lot of big wineries, and then there's also the tradition of thousands of years, which is people growing wine at home, growing grapes at home. Romania has the largest number of individual wine growers in the world. Actually, we have more than a million families that have vines wow. plantations yes it's a fact it's the biggest number not not necessarily the biggest quantity but the biggest number of individual owners so lots of people that have yeah just two or three rows of vines in their back garden they'll make wine for their families or they'll sell some in this in the towns in the market and that still is that's about half the half the wine, wine market here in Romania it was interesting. You described it as being Latin in a way, and you know, I think you saw an island of Latinness in a sea of Slavs. Um, it sounds very Latin, as you said. It's, it could be France or Spain or Argentina or Portugal, somebody a place where wine is just part of everyday life. Yeah? It's the, it, it is Latin. It's de- they've descended to a large extent from the Italians, from Romans. Mm. Romanian language is, if you've done Latin at school, like I did. Romanian language is, is very similar to Latin. If you see it written, you can probably read a lot of it if you know Latin. So it's a Latin country, it's a Latin language. The culture is similar. It's a warm country. It's a southern European country. It's by the sea. So it's it's very similar to all those sort of Mediterranean area in that, that respect. Yeah. I mean, I read that it's divided into three main areas and eight growing regions. Can you just very briefly tell us how they differ? Because you, as you said, you're, you're on the Black Sea, or part of it is. You also got the influence of, of the Carpathians, the mountains. Um, you know, how different are those terroirs across the 187,000 hectares? There are huge differences. There are huge, different, really significant differences climatically, even culturally. So where we are in my main, our main winery is where our company is here and it's called Rekash, which is the town near Timisoara, it's 20 miles away. It's, this area is very much Central European culturally and Central European, like climatically. It's like a continental climate of more of extremes. <clears throat> so that means quite cold winters, very hot summers. We had a lot of 
weeks and weeks this year where it was over 35, 40 degrees, very hot. And then uh, quite big differences between then nighttime temperature, which is good for growing grapes. So today it's 30 degrees outside, but at nighttime it's 14. So quite a big difference in then night. And then medium altitude here, where most of the vineyards are on low hills, like two, 300 meters altitude, which, which helps uh, cool them down a bit and also helps with the drainage because it can be quite rainy at the end of the season. So this is one region. I think the best grapes for this region are the local variety, Fetesco Regala, and Chardonnay goes very well here. Pinot Noir goes well here. And then you have the central region, which is Transylvania, which is inside the, it's kind of on a plateau inside the Carpathian Mountains, which are pretty big mountains. They're serious mountains, like bigger than anything in the UK. And Transylvania is much cooler region, much cooler. So it's more, I would say, a bit like the climate in Germany, southern Germany. So they, they and they grow a lot of German varieties. They have a lot of Riesling there, Sauvignon. It's pretty much all white, all whites, all white grapes, Transylvania. So higher acidity, crisper, long growing season. And then you have the Black Sea region, which again is very different. The, Black Sea acts like a, yeah, a cooling, moderating influence. So in the summers, the sea will cool down the temperature, let's say about 20, 30 kilometers inland significantly. I was driving there a couple of weeks ago and 10 kilometers from the seaside, it was 40 degrees centigrade. And as soon as we started getting close to the to the beach, it was down to 25, so it was 15 degrees drop in temperature in 10 kilometers. Massive. And the yeah. sea was cool, and, and that affects the vineyards there. It makes it very dry. That region is very dry. It's actually getting too dry for viticulture now. This is the only region in Romania where you literally cannot grow grapes there without irrigation. It's it's And it didn't used to be like that, even, even 30 years ago when I started. So it's cool but dry, yeah? It's cool, but very dry. The, yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. I guess the rain goes onto the sea or something, but it, it rains very little down there. And those are three main areas then, those three? Those are three big ones. There's mm. one more which is even bigger called Vrancha, which is on the border with the Republic of Moldova. So it's in the east of Romania, a bit higher up towards Ukraine. We have a lot of borders with Ukraine. Branch is a more mixed region. It's again on the slope of the mountains. It's more continental in climate. So quite warm, but again, more white. And they, they have some of their own varieties. They're like Sharba and Galbuna. So very diverse. Each region has one or two of its own local, local grapes. Some of the international varieties, which have gone particularly well there, like Francia, they have better Cabernet than the rest of the country. So it's interesting. And there's a whole other region in the north called Katnar, which only makes aromatic sweet wines, white wines from local national, local varieties like Grasa, Fetesca. So something completely different. It's a bit like Tokaya of Romania. Okay. It's amazing. I mean, just tell us how you came to buy the winery, you know, where you're based now, the Kremeli Rikesh, is that how I pronounce it? Rikesh, yeah. Rikesh. It was an existing winery and it came with all these vineyards. <laughs> I mean, 
did you think, hell, but I don't want all those many vineyards? Maybe I did. Did I you actually <laughs> told the government people that, yeah, we didn't want to buy such a big vineyard. It, it was uh, an accident, really. So I was working for this German company, for Mr. Ray, and our job was finding grapes in Romania and making wines in rented wineries, mainly for selling to the UK and German markets. And we did that for six or seven years quite successfully. But I had a bit of a dispute with him. You know, all the big German wine companies are not really wine producers. They are they buy and bottle wines. They buy wines or juices and then they bottle them. They don't really own vineyards to any large extent, and they don't really make a lot of wine themselves. And I was telling Mr. Ray that in Romania, if he wanted to be successful, needed to uh, own a part of the vineyards, A, to have a more stable quality, but also commercially to have something that you can grow the business on, have like a stable foundation to the business. Uh, he wasn't having it. He wasn't having it. He was like, no. We're a negotiant, I guess you could call it. We're, we're, we're a trader, we're not a wine producer. So then, this was about the late 1990s, 97, 98, the Romanian government decided it wanted to start selling these um, wineries and vineyards because they had all been nationalized during communism. So at that point, they all, when I say nationalized, they've been confiscated by force from their former owners. Um, so they wanted to sell them. My wife talked me into it. Um, this, the state guys, the guy from the ministry of agriculture came to us and said, you know, this winery is up for sale. Uh, we said we wanted to buy a hundred hectares, make it like a boutique winery in a small thing. And they said, no, he said, you have to buy the whole thing. At that time it was 600 hectares. And a big old rusty old winery, not very nice. And I don't know, I just I didn't know. We didn't have any money. We were young in my twenties still. And I said, I just tried it. I said, we'll pay for it in five years. We'll you we'll pay it for it in 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 stages. And they, and they agreed. They let us pay for it in five years. When <laughs> it took you ten years to make a profit, was that right? It took us ten years to make a profit. Yeah, yeah. But you're making good profit now. I mean, you've turned it into this amazingly successful winery. I mean, how many how many million litres are you making now? It's uh, about 30 million litres, about 33 million bottles. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's grown hugely. I mean, it's 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 the vineyard is now 1,250 hectares, so it's more than double. Mm. And we have three other wineries around the country that we operate. So it's gotten huge very quickly. Still family-owned, right? It's family-owned. It's three families. It's me and my wife, Elvira, uh, George, jo George, my partner, and John, my other partner, and their wives too. So it's three families that own it. Uh, it's a hundred percent family-owned, 100% private. And I just wondered, did you have an idea of the styles of wine you wanted to make from from right from the get-go? When I've been working in my previous job uh, for Mr. Ray. We always used flying winemakers to come here to Romania and improve the quality. And a lot of them were Australian. So I, I had a I had a definite idea that I wanted to go in that direction because I, I'd say new world winemaking, 
pretty specifically Australian because I have seen and I still believe strongly that the Australians have um, a scientific fact-based way of looking at it and what they do in the winemaking and you know without a lot, a lot of other countries have um, it's more of a tradition based and a more of some of them are very constricted by legal legal things that they impose on themselves like French and Spanish and you know all of their rules about barrel aging and you can't call an Alsace Riesling a Riesling if it has more than five grams of sugar and all kinds of crazy things like that um, so the Australians, they have this great research institute, the AWRI, and they find out what makes wine taste like it does chemically, production-wise, and it's linked to what consumers want to buy. They, they try and make what people want to buy. And we had this huge wine that we were forced to buy with no customers. It didn't have any business when we bought it. All it was selling was grapes and some bulk wine. So it didn't have any labels, it didn't have any bottling, and we had a lot of debts, and we had to sell a lot of wine quickly. So that's why we've always been interested to make the wines in the styles customers wanted to buy. And, and, and very market-focused, right? We had to be very market-focused because it, it was at a time, it wasn't like an easy money time like the last 10 years have been in the where you could get credit at very low interest rates. Yeah. We literally couldn't get any loans from banks back then. They wouldn't loan us money. Pretty much all the banks were in bankruptcy. <laughs> so it's a bit it's a bit like you're starting selling advertising space. If you didn't sell any space, you didn't get paid. Same thing, if you didn't sell any wine, you, the, the business goes under, right? That was it, yes. That was it. And we developed this way of um, consumer focus, listening to what our customers wanted us to make. You know, and, and even going down to planting the vineyards with the varieties that we thought we could sell more of. And I think because I'm in British and not uh, Romanian, I don't get so bogged down in all of the sort of, you know, some people will say, oh, my region, we grow whatever. Fetesco, Negro de Dragasan, or whatever. Vermentino in the case of the Italians. And I, I'm only going to sell Vermentino. And because my grandfather sold Vermentino, and I'm not like that. I'm like, oh, if somebody wants to buy Pinot Noir and I think I can grow Pinot Noir, then I'm going to plant Pinot Noir. Yeah, it, yeah. And I think I was right. Mm. <laughs> so far. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you talk about the enormous diversity of, of terroir you've got, and yet Romania is seen partly thanks to your success as a kind of reliable source of inexpensive international varieties, things like Merlot, Pinot Noir, Cabernet, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, you know, Pinot Grigio. Is that cheap and cheerful tag uh, a bit of a burden in a sense or not? Yes, it is. It's a, a downside. Uh, it could be right. It could be partially because of, of us, but I don't think it's only because of what we've done so far. I think it's also just the prejudice that people have about the East European countries overall. Probably started by the Bulgarians, where mm. people, especially in the UK and also in Germany, kind of expect these countries just to produce very cheap wine. It is something that's a bit of a pain. It's a bit of a pain without trying to swear or anything, be rude. It's, <laughs> yeah, makes it hard to 
get people to take our more serious wines, take them seriously. seriously yeah. And especially from the point of view of importers, distributors, shops, shop owners, bar owners, it's much more hard to sell a, a premium wine from Romania, say in the UK or in Holland or Germany, than I think it would be with a, you know, probably from any of the big wine regions in Europe. They, they just, it's not a region that people associate with more serious high-end wines, which is a shame because it, it literally in the last, I would say, 10, 15 years, it's really developed as a producer. There's a lot of very nice, very modern, pretty much all Romanian wineries are ultra-modern now. A lot of money has been invested here. There's a lot of great winemakers. There's a lot of very interesting wines. Most of them get sold in Romania. <laughs> <laughs> tell us a bit about the local grapes which are the best ones um i mean i wonder if any have broken through into the international market and there's there's a sort of family of fetiascas isn't there? i hope i pronounced that correctly you know of different colors would that be the most famous fetiasca is it niagara you pronounce it uh, the, the the dark skinned one they're definitely the most uh famous so there's fetiasca negra as you rightly said i personally think that's from the reds, that's probably the one with the most potential, and I think it's generally seen as a sort of flagship variety. It's got a very long history. It's at least 2,000 years old. It's quite distinctive. It's got its own character. And then there are, there are a couple of white mutations of it. There's Fetesca Alba, which is a bit more aromatic, a bit more towards the kind of um, Sauvignon Blanc direction. And then there's Fetesca Regala, which is, a let's say, a a crossing of Fetesca Alba with another variety. And that, I think, is the most commercial one of all three because that is uh, a bit more peachy, apricot It's a very nice... It's not as aggressive as a aromatic wine like a Torontes or something. It's a bit, bit more like a ferment, but more, more fruit, more aromatic than a ferment. So it's, a, it's an aromatic, crisp white variety quite often made a bit medium dry, which which is the most popular one here in Romania. And to answer your second question, that that is also the one that we've had quite serious success with abroad. So the Fidesco Regala, we sell more than a million bottles of it per year in England, and we have it in some quite mainstream um, outlets. Like We just launched a new one in Marks & Spencer. We have one in Asda. We do one more high-end one, like a premium one, which we sell on the on-trade in London with um, Corny and Barrow, our importer there. They're doing some great high-end wines for more interesting, for like wine shops. And so all, all very exciting. That's all happened quite recently. So it's, it's starting to take off, I would say. With those indigenous grapes, yeah? Yeah, and we're happy about that because we, you know, we're not the same as Australia or chili or whatever we we have this very long history we have our own varieties south africa we have to you know capitalize on the things that make us different from the other wine countries and they're all great varieties there are a few more with potential there's negro de dragashan which is a very nice soft red wine it's sort of in the direction of nero d'avola i would say there's shaba which is aromatic a bit muscati there's a lot there's tamoyasa there's we don't have as many as Portugal or people like that. But we but, have a, but a fair number. Yeah. 
Yeah. To, to, I mean, it's interesting what you were talking about saying, you know, you, you almost have to try a bit harder to sell wines from, from Romania, or at least you did at the beginning. And your packaging is very good, right? I mean, that's a big part of your success, I think, isn't it? But who does your labels? Is, is that all down? Is it your kind of ideas that go into the labels? Do you have designers working with you? I mean, they look very smart. I'm very involved in it. And um, I have a team of designers. I have a couple in the UK. Mark, one guy up in Edinburgh, but he's not Scottish, he's British or English. Sorry. And we have different ones. We have a couple in Germany and we have some here in Romania too. I think the because we're not such a well-known wine country, um, because nobody knows the regions from here, nobody knows the varieties from here, we do need to try harder to catch people's attention. So Packaging has always been a critical part of it, and we need to personalize that to who we're talking to, who we're trying to sell to. So we do have a lot of different packaging for each country we sell to. We even have, like, even in the UK there, for example, we will have different label for, like, discounters, like uh, Aldi when we work with them, or different ones for the on-trade for restaurants. We have different labels entirely for Romanian market, for German market, for American market. They're all different. And um, I do like them to be smart and modern. We're not trying to sell on, you know, just on our history and traditions and stuff like that, sort of gothic-looking labels. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a good idea. It's very based on varietal and looking modern and fun. Yeah. And not so much on the... not obviously about the identity of the country because the identity of the country is not very strong Mm. but we do have a lot of labels that use romanian names romanian folk themes people wouldn't necessarily spot them as being romanian unless they are romanian but they are right (laughs) they are yeah (laughs) tell i I want to ask you something where's you know are there any countries left in the world where you know a young entrepreneur the next philip cox could do what what you've done i mean Albania, I was thinking, would that be a possibility? Where else could people go and, and just find a, a wine culture and, and, and do what you've done with it, just turn it into an amazing business? Uh, I would say North Macedonia. North Macedonia I find very exciting. I've done a bit of work there with them. I've, I've bought some wine there on occasions. They have great red wines, and they have a, a huge wine industry compared to their consumption. So I think that makes them very interested in exporting. It's the opposite of Romania. In Romania, we have a large production of wine, but it's also quite a big country. They drink it all. So it'd be good to have a country where they have a lot of wine and not many people. Another one is Moldova. They need to export wine because they don't drink a lot of their own wine. But yeah, I think Macedonia, I think you're right, Albania. Albania is a bit difficult because it's, it's it's longer away from being in Europe. It's had these you know turmoils and it's, mm. It's a bit more cut off, but they have some great, interesting wines. I've I've been there a couple of years ago, and I was I was impressed with some of their varieties. Serbia should be doing a lot more, and I think they will in the future. They, you know, they've been kind of shut out of Europe, and but they they have a great wine industry in Serbia. Kosovo, Kosovo has a great wine industry, but again, it's messed up by politics. So, so anybody listening to this who wants to do what you've done, I mean, not saying they're going to be as successful as you are, but the, there are opportunities in this place, right? I think, yeah, I think North Macedonia would be the easiest because they already have a lot of vineyards functioning 
and they are looking to expand. And I think they're likely to be in the European Union soon, which will make things a lot easier. Yeah, before Albania is, I'd imagine. Yeah, I think Albania is going to take a while and Kosovo will take a very long time. Just tell me a little bit. I mean, you're quite outspoken about politics and particularly about Brexit, as I tend to be as well over the years. What what do you say to the people who say, hey, Philip, you know, just, just stick to wine? I don't think I ever, whenever I talked about Brexit or other crazy things the governments do in various countries, I don't try and be political. I don't really care which party is saying it. I, I talk about things that are bad for business people, from my point of view. And so when we were talking about Brexit and the effects that it would have on the wine industry, I had 15 years' experience making and selling wine outside the European Union and trading with the European Union when Romania was not in it. And so I, it was absolutely clear to me the effects that getting out of the single market in the European Union and the, and the customs union is going to have on our industry because I lived through that for years and it's, it's a pain in the ass. So and I, it was. I, and it I has, told everybody it was going to be a pain in the ass and everyone, yeah, a lot of people said, oh, you should shut up. It's not your job and you'll upset our customers. And I, I was like, I don't care. You know, if they, they're, it's going to happen and they're going to find out about it soon. And we, we have, I think. <laughs> and even now, other stupid stuff like the English government has this thing about increasing duty a lot now based on alcohol levels mm. and it's another stupid thing and it's it's a it's a it's not i don't care what party is doing it as i'm sure the other party probably would do the same thing i don't know but um it's very hard to tell what either of any of them want to do mm. but it's bad for business bad for english wine consumers it's bad for us so now we're in the very odd position right now in 2023 where basically all our english customers are asking us to water down our wine to have less alcohol in it. And we're in a, we're in a tricky position because we're in the European Union. We're not allowed to add water to wine, but we are competing with Australians, South Africans. They're just putting millions of litres of water in their wines for the English people. To, br- to bring the alcohol level down, to pay less to duty. The alcohol. They literally, watering it down for them just means putting water in it. That's crazy. And that's very hard with us to compete with. His water is cheaper than wine. <laughs> we're struggling to pick grapes earlier, you know, and trying to find ways to make the alcohol less. And uh, it's a bit unfair from a competition point of view, but it's, yes. it's incredibly sad for the English wine-drinking people that they're going to be getting crappy wine more expensively. It's just bad yeah. for the wine industry no. overall, you know. I don't think that's political. That's, that's just a fact. No. Yeah, I think you're right. The final question, you know, quickly, I mean, how do you get away from wine? Is wine your social life too? You've obviously got family. Um, can you close the door on the business at the weekends and just say, I'm going to go do something else? Well, right now in September is just awful. It's harvest time. We're in the middle of the harvest now and it's it's incredibly stressful. The weather has been becoming more and more volatile and unpredictable and making our life difficult. But yeah, I try. I, I try very hard when I get home to sort of turn off my phone and not not do any work at night. I have two quite young kids, so that takes up a lot of the rest of my time. They're doing their school now, so I'm spending my time trying to get them to do maths lessons and stuff. I can't say I particularly enjoy either, but 
it's not really relaxing, but it is something different. So, yeah, I try and get out of here, go on holidays if I can. But it it doesn't seem to be getting easier, frankly. We have, a, we have such a lot going on, such a lot of mix-ups in politics getting in our way. Here in Europe, we're struggling to put the ingredients on our labels now, which I think is a good thing. It's complicated, you know, redoing all your labels makes us very busy. The English have their thing with the wine tax. We're making a lot of organic wines. And, and natural now, wines and now as well, aren't you? Wines. And orange wines. and Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's even that's getting more complicated. Every country in the world now seems to have its own <laughs> organic wine standard. The so, English have a different organic wine system now. The Japanese have just launched another organic wine system. The Germans have a... It's, like every, it's, it's never-ending. So what oh. you're basically saying is you don't have much time with your family to get away from wine. Anyway, listen, um, Philip, it's been amazing talking to you. What a great story, you know, that you just took a punt, went to Romania, you know, tried the cinema, the cinema didn't work, you were doing beer, um, you know, stumbled into wine, saw an opportunity and have just created this amazing business. It's been a pleasure talking to you uh, and love the wines. I just think that, you know, they're, they're, they're distinctive, they're fun, they're great value, you know, and, and they're just a pleasure to drink. So anyway, it's been a pleasure talking to you Thank too. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. See you soon. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Philip's story is truly inspirational, isn't it? And interesting to hear what he had to say about the opportunities offered by Northern Macedonia. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Yves Cuillon from the Northern Rhone Valley. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at TimAtkinMW. See you next week.